I'm Liana, and 17 years ago, my 17-year-old mother gave birth to me. I was unplanned, and to my biological father was unwanted. Him and my mother did not stay together after my birth, and from a young age to current time, I've been unsure about who will leave me and who will stay. I discovered my inability to handle change and was diagnosed with depression and anxieties. Slowly, the attention I needed to be mentally stable slipped away through my fingers. The only thing I did to manage both my depression and anxieties was go to therapy for a few years, and this kept me together, but it never really helped. I never really got better. When I was 15 years old, I had about had enough with emotion, and I turned to self-mutilation. For the first time, I experimented with cutting. I did it two or three times after, but never really found the comfort or the release I was seeking. The next thing I turned to was burning. I've always had what my mom would call a thing for fire, and sure enough, I took to burning. It was more addictive than I would have ever imagined. Within a few months, I went from burning every other week to every other day, and at my worst, every other hour. The burns went from slightly pink first degree to blistering brown third degree. I became an expert at dressing wounds, always to make sure none got infected, always to make sure my secret was safe. I was hiding lighters like an alcoholic hides his liquor, and hiding scars like an alcoholic hides his drunkenness. In September of 2012, I saw a psychiatrist for the first time to address my sleeping problems. When answering the first time questions, I lied to both, have you ever self-injured and have you ever had suicidal thoughts? What happened next, I thought at the time, was because of my guilt. I now know it was God telling me I needed help. Together, God and I told my mom my deepest, darkest secret. The big question from everyone, my family, my psychiatrist, my therapist, the assessor, and I'm sure all of you, was why. The answer, not too far off from any other addicts. Control, escape, to lose touch with emotions. For the following six weeks, I went through Linden Oaks Discoveries program for self-injurers just like me. During those six weeks, I also began going to Celebrate Recovery, and these two together were probably the best things I ever did for myself. Celebrate Recovery is something that really keeps me safe from myself. My small group is like an accountability team, and I am constantly reminded that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is here with me every step of my recovery. Father, thank you so much for the work that you do here, near, and far in changing the hurting lives, oh God, that are us and that are all around us. And I just thank you for the ministry of the Compass Church and for Celebrate Recovery and for the blessings that are coming out as people's lives are healed. God, just continue that work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's good to know that God is at work helping and changing hearts and lives here in and through the Compass Church. Would you agree? Yeah, and you get to be a part of that as you pray and support at both of our campuses. Well, we're in our series, God Is. We're looking through the letter that the Apostle Paul was inspired by God's Spirit to write to believers in Rome, and that includes you and it also includes me uh, this weekend as well. And so far, we've learned some things like, for instance, we learned that God is good. We talked about the fact that God is just. We talked about the fact that God is grace. We talked about the fact that God is faithful. This weekend, we want to talk about the majesty of God. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question. It might be a little painful for you to hear this question because I'm going to guess some of you at either of our campuses have actually experienced this question. But here it is. Would you love someone if you knew ahead of time 
that they would betray your love? Would you love someone if you knew ahead of time that they would betray your love? Probably not. And what would you do if you did know someone and you saw the path they were going down and you said to them, don't go down this path. That person is going to hurt you, but they didn't listen to you and they went down that path anyway. What would you say to that person? This weekend, God defies logic. What I mean by that is, God does the thing that oftentimes we tell ourselves we would never do, or we tell somebody else, don't ever do it. God, infinite, perfect God, who knows all things, knew before he created Adam and Eve, and therefore the rest of us, that we would flee from his arms of grace and love, and we would run into the arms of evil and rebellion. Why would God do something like that? I mean, on a human level, what would we say to somebody, another person in our family or a friend who did that, knowing what the results were going to be? We'd say, are you crazy? What are you thinking? Well, I don't want to call God crazy. But what was he thinking? Did God... Did God know that this was all going to happen? Or did God make a mistake? Did God succeed or really did he, did he fail? What was God doing? And that's why you want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of the toughest passages in the entire New Testament so I want you to turn there, and I really want you to be in the Word. So if you didn't bring your Bible, you're more than welcome here or at 95th to grab a chair of Bible. I think it's like page 874 is about where you'll find Romans chapter 9. I want to start by reading verse 1. Here it goes. Paul says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. Now that's not saying that the rest of the time I lie. What he's saying is, I, I'm being very vulnerable. I'm talking to you now from my gut. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not just telling you what I want to say, but God is also stirring in me. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. Remember, Paul is Jewish. My Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ. If that would save them, of course it can't. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God. The one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. By the way, that's a great uh, verse you need to underline because it's one of the verses in the Bible that, that teaches and proves that Jesus Christ was more than a man, that he was very God. And so if somebody ever asks you, well, where does it say that in the Bible? Right there you go. Right there it is. Important verse. But when I read this passage of Scripture, I see pain in Paul's soul. I hear pain in his heart, don't you? 
A pain that, that is somewhat like the pain of God. Paul says, my heart aches for my people that God chose and God adopted because they've walked away from God despite all his blessings and all his goodness and all his grace. And in a sense, Paul is feeling God's pain, not just for the Jewish people, but, but for a broken and, and lost world. People who cut themselves, burn themselves. People who are messed up. Before I came over uh, this weekend to speak, I, I stopped and had some hot tea at uh, a local coffee establishment. And uh, while I was sitting there, I think... Uh, it was the afternoon for high schoolers to do homework because they were all around me. And I have to tell you something. I'm sitting there trying to just, you know, go over my, my thoughts, my notes, reading the scripture. And I have young people dropping the F-bomb all around me. I mean, young women, high school girls doing this. And it was really starting to, as my mom would say, raise my ire. I was, just, I was getting kind of fed up with it. And I, I wanted to turn around and say, what is wrong with you? Why are you using language like that? Stop talking like that. But of course I didn't. And uh, as I finally, you know, I was like, I was so sick and tired of it after a while, I just packed up and left. But as, as I thought more about it afterwards, I thought to myself, man, it was really easy for me to be judgmental and condemning toward those kids toward those girls. I don't know who they are. I don't know what kind of family they come from. I don't know what they've been through. Instead of having a heart that's condemning and critical, why not have a broken heart? Why not turn it into prayer? Why not grieve for them? Why not hurt for them? Because God does. And so then I found myself praying for them. How about you? It's really easy, I think, for us sometimes to get negative and condemning to the world that's around us. And I know there's a, lot, there's a lot of negativity, a lot of nasty stuff out there. And I'm not saying you just got to accept it, let it walk all over you, but rather than react to it in a way that's, that's not really Christ-like, what if we were to feel the pain of a lost world? Like a lot of us struggle with feeling that pain. We don't want to feel that pain. We only want to be about ourselves. But, but God loved a whole world. We go back to the passage and and, and Paul asks a great question. He says in verse 6, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? Now he's talking to Israel. Now he's talking to the Jews who would be listening to this letter, who would be reading about this later on. Gentiles are listening in as well, because the church had both Gentiles and Jews. And he's saying, look, did God fail the Jewish people? And I love how he responds. Very complicated. He says, no. Let's all say it together. No. no. One more time. It's much easier to say than yes, isn't it? Paul says, no, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Oh, that's interesting. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Through Abraham, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. 
But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of Scripture, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. But it sounds like it, doesn't it? It sounds like it, doesn't it? You know, you go back to this passage, and verse 11 is a very important verse. When Paul says, this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes, you got to remember that. You know, God could have rejected the whole human race after Adam and Eve blew it, and there'd be no hope, and we would all, and we are all deserving of hell. But God chooses to intervene. And make salvation available. He chooses to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. He hasn't made any mistakes. He hasn't taken any unnecessary risk. And he is not being unfair. But God is in charge. And he doesn't allow us to dictate to him how he's going to save the world or how he's going to run the universe. So, for instance, you come back and he gives an illustration of Abraham. He says, you know, God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless him and that he would bless and create out of him a nation that would bless the entire world. In other words, God would use Abraham and his family to get the good news of God's love out to the world. And God said to Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to have a child, and it's through that child and succeeding generations that I will bless. But remember, Abraham tried to help God out. Anybody try to help God out this week? Either campus? Okay? Doesn't always go real well when we try to help God out, does it? He, you know, Sarah says, hey, you know, I'm too old. I can't get pregnant. Take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a baby. And, you know, he was, Abraham was a doofus at that point. You know, he just goes, okay, all right? And they have, they have a child, right? And it's like, it's like Abraham saying to God, God, I'm helping you out. Here's how you can save the world. Look, I made a baby with Hagar. Surely you're going to take Ishmael and use him. And God's like, man, that was your choice. I don't save the world by your plan, Abraham. I told you what my plan was. And it's going to be through her. And it's going to be through the son that you and her have together. Don't tell me how to run the program of salvation. I'm in charge. Then he gives a, another illustration here. He says, and, and Isaac got married to Rebecca, and, and she had twins. And the first one that came out was who? Was Jacob? No. Esau, right? And Jacob came out right afterwards hanging on to his what? Hanging on to his heel. Now, in the culture... The one who should be next in line to receive the greatest part of the inheritance is the firstborn. Which was who? Which was Esau. But God says, uh-uh, it's not going to be Esau. I'm going counterculture here. It is going to be Jacob. It's going to be Jacob. He's the one that I'm going to bless and use. But 
But notice the passage of Scripture says that God made that choice that it was going to be the secondborn, not the firstborn, before either of them had done anything good or bad. In other words, the choice wasn't made based on God kind of knowing ahead of time that Esau was going to be a rascal and Jacob was going to be better. If you read that whole story in Genesis, Jacob was a bad guy. I mean, he was a big-time liar, okay, and deceiver, a mama's boy. God didn't choose him. No offense to you mama boys out there. I'm a mama's boy. I am. I admit it. No problem. All right? I am a mama's boy. But God said, I want you and I'm going to use you. It has nothing to do with your character, your quality. I choose you. Now, some of the older Bibles have it. God, I love Jacob. I hated Esau. It does not mean God hated Esau. The literal translation means I choose Jacob I reject Esau. It doesn't mean I hate Esau. I don't want Esau. It just means I'm choosing to use Jacob. I'm in charge. It's my plan. I choose how I'm going to work, who I'm going to use, and how I'm going to do it. Then he comes back in the passage here, and he says, it's not unfair. How I work is not unfair. He says in verse 15, for God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Man, he's been talking about that all the way through Romans. You don't choose it, you can't work for it. It is a gift that God gives as he chooses and wills to give. Verse 17, for the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh of Egypt, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth because the ten plagues, remember? And Pharaoh is the strongest man in the world at that time and God's going to break him, humiliate him, and deliver his people. So you see, verse 18, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so that they refuse to listen to him. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? Hasn't he just pre-programmed some of us to go to heaven and pre-programmed some of us to go to hell? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. Remember, he's been talking about God choosing and extending his grace and extending his mercy. Please get rid of this mental picture that we sometimes get in our minds that that before we were born, we were like all souls hanging in heaven on a rack. And one rack is the damned to hell rack. And the other rack is the saved to eternal life rack. And God just, you know, God just goes, okay, Pharaoh's on the damn to hell rack. Stick him in the body. And we're just going to make life hard on him up here. I'm going to humiliate him. And when I'm done with him, I'm going to throw him in the pit of hell like a log in the fire. That's how some people think about God. Man, that's not how God operates. That's not how God works. God did not choose Pharaoh in order to send Pharaoh to hell, in order to make him hard. Pharaoh made his heart hard by rejecting God, by not listening to God. And so the more that Pharaoh rebelled against God, the harder his heart became. In other words, God's justice, God's law, God's desire to deliver his people 
harden Pharaoh's heart. Haven't you known people like that? I have. The more good you do for them, the more bitter they become, the more hard they become. The more you have to challenge them, the more you have to correct them, the more you have to discipline them, rather than accepting it and humbling themselves, they become more stubborn, they become more difficult. And God just finally says, you know, there, your hard heart, you can have a concrete heart. If that's what you wanted, then I'll, I'll let you go your way. That's what's going on in this passage. And it's a, it's a reminder to us, it's a lesson to us. We need to listen to God. Because he's in charge. Pharaoh was not in charge of the world. God is, and Pharaoh didn't want to let go of that. I look at some of our political leaders worldwide, and I get a little worried about them sometimes because they harden their hearts toward God. They don't want to humble their knees before God. And God always wins. Paul says, so, are we pre-programmed? Is that the deal? Verse 19, he says in verse 20, no, don't say that, he says. Who are you, a mere human being? How many of you are a mere human being this weekend, both camps? I just want to make sure I'm not on a different planet, right? Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. You say, man, that just sounds like God is, you know, a terror. You know, like he's making some people for heaven and making some people for hell, and we have no right to say anything because we're just a lump of clay. I might be a garbage can, and you might be a beautiful vase. That's not what it's saying. We don't have any rights before God. We cannot say and argue with God and say, you ought to choose me for some specific reason. We all deserve to be garbage cans. We all do. We have no right to talk back to God. God could send us all to hell if he wanted to. The point of the passage, though, if you keep reading here, is that while God has the right to do that, he extends his mercy. He is so patient with human beings. The Bible says... He is willing that none should perish. None, 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 none should perish. But all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. Here, near, and far. All should come to repentance. But he says, you know, there are some people, Paul says here, who are destined for destruction. And that destined, just so you know, I did go to grad school, is in what we call the middle voice. And what that means is it doesn't mean that God destined them to destruction. It means that they destined themselves. They move into a posture of being rejected by God. They get in God's way. They set themselves up to suffer the consequences. God doesn't make anybody go to hell. It is a choice, a result of our disobedience. Then he moves on. The passage says, He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. When a person stands in in God's path of, of obedience, when a person lines up with God's grace, 
then God is glorified. Then the light shines because you see such a difference. When we cooperate with God, it's beautiful. When we don't cooperate with God, as patient as he is with us, he has the right, when it's all said and done, to judge us if we refuse to listen to him. Now, come down to verse 30 and on, and I'm going to encourage you to read this a little bit later on on your own. We're only doing the 30,000 flight over Romans, remember? Okay, 30,000 foot flight over Romans. But Paul says, you know, what it boils down to is that there are two ways to get to heaven. Did you know that? How many of you this, knew that this weekend on the campus? There are two ways to heaven. We, often talk, we oftentimes say there's only one way. There are two ways. The first way is keep the law perfectly. Anybody at either campus fit in that category? No, right? You have to be perfect to get in that way. So forget that way. The only other way into heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ. As God's gift for us. How many of you are on that ticket? That's a good ticket to be on, right? Because you don't have to do anything for it. It's a gift from God. You say, I don't know, Pastor Dale, I'm still struggling with that. Romans chapter 9, I think you're just trying to make it sound good for us. It sure sounds like God programmed some people for heaven and some people for hell. I know some of the people he programmed for hell. I'll tell you about them later on. No, can't do that. Okay, you got to interpret Scripture by its broad context. you got to look at what other verses say. Not only that, but when you are trying to understand God's character... Listen to this. Here's a secret. shouldn't be a secret, but listen to this. If you really want to understand God's character, you must always interpret it in light of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is a full disclosure of God. And they can never be in conflict together. So you have to keep that in mind. And chapter 10 sets it up beautifully for us. Verse 4 Paul says, summarizing a lot, he says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. The law just showed us how imperfect we are. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. God now looks at me through his son, and when I receive his son, he sees me as perfect. Isn't that cool? I think it is. I think it's great. Anybody, anybody have a chance recently to walk up to somebody and say, Hi, I'm righteous. Anybody remember that? A couple weekends ago we talked about that. Anybody try it? Did you get hurt? Okay, all right. But you are righteous. You are. Let me hear everybody say it together. I, at both campuses, I am righteous. Still hard for you to say it, isn't it? Because you're thinking, man, there's no way. You should have seen me earlier today. <laughs> has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what God has done for you, in you, through you. Paul comes down, though, in the passage of Scripture, and I want you to pick it up in verse 8. He says, in fact, it says... He's talking about this message of God's love, this message of being righteous because of what Christ has done for us. He says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you don't have to like, climb up to heaven and find Jesus, okay, and, and have him save you. Neither do you have to go dig up a grave and, and raise him from the dead because he's already risen. Paul says your salvation is as close as your mouth and as close as your heart. And he says anybody who confesses 
Jesus as Lord with their mouth and believes with their heart that he's been raised to the dead, they shall be what? Wow, that was weak. They shall be what? I mean, it's so weak at Hobson, I could hear 95th. They're strong at 95th. All right, let's just sketch it out, okay? So here we are, human beings, right? And Paul says, whoever confesses with their mouth, a smiley mouth, okay? Whoever confesses, what? Jesus as who? Ah, confess him as Lord and believes with their what? Their heart? What? That he rose from the dead, right? He's no longer down. God raised him from the dead. Will be what? Will be saved. But this is a big deal right there, Lord. That's a big deal. What does it mean to confess to my mouth that Jesus is Lord? It means to acknowledge that he is in charge. It means to acknowledge that he has full rights over my life. So accepting Jesus as my Savior, when we, when we ask Christ into our life, it's not just some little prayer we do. It's not a little magical prayer. I just got to say this prayer. I think we mislead a lot of people what it means to be a believer. It means you come to the point where you're willing to say, I, I'm getting off the throne. He's now in charge. To believe with the heart, okay? What's that all about? That, is, that means to set my, my faith and my affection and my trust that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's alive today and he's coming again. Amen? Wow, that's hope. That's encouragement for all of us. And I just want you to circle a couple words. Verse 11, as the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Who? Any who? Anyone, right? Look what he says in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. See how that balances out chapter 9? See how you got to know chapter 10 in order to interpret chapter 9 the proper way? It's anyone and everyone who will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? Only a few, no, whosoever believes, right? Should not perish but have everlasting life. But I like verse 14. It says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. That's why the Compass Church sends me all over the world. To train pastors to go into the dark places of the world to tell people about who? About Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's not just about far. It's right about, it's about our families, about our neighbors, it's about our loved ones. It's about the people who are near to us. And beautiful are your feet when you care about the people around you because God means so much to you. You will serve them. You will be patient with them. You will pray for them. You will wrap your arms around them. You will suffer with them because you want them to know the same Jesus. Because you know he can change their lives. Your feet are beautiful. Say, now I got really ugly feet. No, no. It's not your physical feet. It's your heart that moves those feet to go and interact and become involved in relationships with unbelievers who use the F word, who cut you off in traffic who take things from you that 
don't belong to them. They're the ones that we've been called to go and reveal Christ to and show his hope and his love. But he says not everyone welcomes the good news. Verse, 18, uh, verse 16. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? And then he goes on and he talks about how Israel has rejected that good news. And it breaks his heart. God came in the flesh to say to his people, the Messiah, I'm here. I love you. I've tried so many ways. The prophets, the patriarchs. Now I'm sending my son and you reject my son. There's a powerful image there I want to come back to in a moment as we close, but I want you to skip over to chapter 11. You can read chapter 11 later on in detail, or if you're in the sermon-based life group, I've got some great questions for you to discuss there. I just want to hit a couple of things, because it's going to make sense now when you go to chapter 11 to understand it better. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Has God, like, thrown up his hand and said, well, I'm, you know, they rejected my son, I'm through with them? He says, of course not. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his own people. God has a plan for his people. And though it may seem like there are only a few, he says, remember the days of Elijah when Elijah thought he was the only one left who still believed in God, and God revealed to him there were still 7,000 who had not knelt before the, the idol Baal? God has always kept a remnant of the Jewish people faithful to himself. There have always been those who have heard the message of God's love and responded. And he goes on this passage, and I'm not going to go over it because I talked about it in our Ezekiel series. And I encourage you, if you weren't here for that, you can go online and listen to it. It was in January, or you can pick it up at our resource center. But that, that whole series was about God's plan for Israel in the future. God is not finished with Israel. And right now, there's a great ministry to, you know, to the Gentiles like us, but that time is going to close eventually. And then God is going to go to work with Israel, and there's going to be a, a huge revival in Israel. The Jews coming by the scores to faith in God through Christ. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an outright revival that takes place. God has, God has blessed us with the promise of salvation here and now. He's given us that hope He's, he's turning back to his people again. And it's exciting to me. One of the things that helps me appreciate the Bible uh, is not just the fact that I believe that it's inspired by God. It proves itself out. But I'm just watching what's going on in our culture right now. I'm watching what's going on in the Middle East right now. I, I encourage you to go listen to that series again because all the pieces are being lined up. The pieces are set on the board. They're beginning to move. We're entering into that what we think of as the last times. Don't be ignorant. What Paul's saying here, we see it beginning to stage itself and, and that whole experience. But you can read the rest of chapter 11 on your own and uh, I think it'll make sense as you go through that passage together. I just want to bring it back though to one image in chapter 10 that, that, that blesses me but also breaks my heart especially as a dad and a granddad. I, I want to come down to how God feels uh, about his people and how God feels not just about the, the Jewish people who are unbelievers, but how God feels about any unbeliever, Jew or Gentile. Look at what it says in verse 21. All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient 
and rebellious. When I read that verse, this, this, this image came into my mind. It's one, of the, it's one of the greatest joys that I have. I have four grandchildren. And I, uh, I love it when I, when I get to visit Texas and walk into my daughter's house. But especially here in Naperville, Marsha, my wife, watches our two grandboys, uh, Harrison and Xander. I love to walk into the house uh, after work when she's watching them and they're in the other room. I walk into that house, I open that door, and I'll hear these little voices because they call me Papa. Papa's home. Papa's here. And the first thing I do is drop my, my bags, whatever I have, and I get down like this, and I open my arms up, and they just come running. Especially my, my youngest grandson, Xander. He's a cuddler, man. He just comes rambling towards me with his big smile and his fat little cheeks. And he literally falls into my arms, and I fold my arms around him. He rests his head on my shoulder, and I give him kisses. And I hug, and he hugs, and we just love on each other. I'm telling you what, in modern slang, that is dope. <laughs> that is a high. That is just wonderful. That's the picture I want you to have of God. Arms wide open. Come, he says, come. And it just breaks his heart. When we run the other way. This weekend his arms are, are open wide towards you. When's the last time you ran into your Abba's arms and just rested your head on his shoulders? Say, I'm not good enough. He knows that. I've been bad. He knows that. There's no condition. He just wants you to come Rest your head on his shoulders. Whisper your faults and your sins and your hurts into his ear. He forgives you. He loves you. He wants you to spend eternity with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your unending love, your compassion, your grace. God, so many people have taken this passage of Scripture, and at least to my mind, that have oftentimes made you look so harsh and so condemning and monstrous. Yes, God, you could condemn us all. We have no rights before you. But Father, you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to give us eternal life. And your arms are stretched wide open. And you invite us to come and fall into your arms and rest our head on your shoulders. God, you're an awesome God. Just for a moment, I'm going to be still. And I just want you to visualize God with open arms. If it helps you think Jesus with open arms. And will you just let him embrace you? Thank you, Father, for yourself. We celebrate you this weekend. In Jesus' name.
And everybody said, amen.